to Even Darker. I'm so glad you're here. Having always been fascinated by fairy tales, mythical creatures, mythology, folk tales, and legends, I wanted to create a podcast about these exact stories. In each episode, Chris Gordon, Jay Stinnett, or Damian Drake will tell us a story. Then I, Regina Drake, will review the points of the story I found most interesting, shocking, or downright unforgivable. Allow me to show you the origins of things even darker. Take heed, these are in the original early content, not the Big Mouse versions. No shade on him, but this is not for the young. Excited to announce our edition of Mythical Moments of Mythology with Karen Ellinger. Finally, we are going to get a dose of mythology. My favorite. For our 38th episode, we begin with the folktale, The Snow Maiden. This comes to us from Russia. It was first published in 1873 in an issue of the Vesnik Evropi. And now for our story. The Snow Maiden Many years ago, in a distant Russian village, there lived a peasant by name Akim. With his wife, Masha, they lived in a small wooden hut, where they spent their days in love and in harmony. But children had they none. This was a very sore point with both of them. They used to sit by the window or at the door of their little hut, looking at their neighbors, children playing about, and wish they had some of their own. But finding that it was not use wishing, they at last became sad in their old age. One cold winter's day, when the snow lay thick upon the uneven country roads, and the little village boys were running about throwing snowballs and keeping to themselves warm, and making snowmen and women, old Akim and Masha sat by their window looking at them in silence. Suddenly Akim looked up at his wife and said, laughing, Masha, what do you say to coming out into the road and making ourselves a snowman or woman like those little boys yonder? Masha laughed too. It seemed such a queer thing to do at the time of the life. Yes, if you'd like, she replied, let us go. It may cheer us up a bit, but I don't see why it should make a snowman or woman. Let us rather make a child out of snow, as Providence does not seem to wish us to have a real one. I do believe you are getting quite clever in your old age, Masha. Come along. Let us sit to work. Off they went, the old couple, laughing at themselves all the while, and sure enough, they commenced making a snow child. They made the legs, arms, hands, feet, and a snowball for the head. What in the name of wonder are you up to, exclaimed a passerby, stopping suddenly in front of the two old people. A snow child, laughed Masha. 
as she began to explain everything to the stranger. May the saints help you, said he, as he went his way. When they had got to the legs, arms, hands, feet, and head fixed up together, Akim began making the nose, two holes for the eyes, and was just drawing a smile line for the mouth, when he suddenly, much to his surprise, felt warm breath come out of it. He took his hands away quickly, and on looking up at the two holes made for the eyes, beheld two real beautiful blue eyes and lips become full and rosy, and as for the nose, it was the dearest little nose ever seen. Good heavens, what does this mean? Is it a temptation of an evil one? cried Akim, crossing himself in several times, while the snow child threw her arms round his neck and kissed him as though she were alive. Oh, Akim, Akim, cried Marcia, trembling with joy. Providence has at least taken pity on us and sent us this child to cheer us in our old age. She was about to throw her arms around the snow child and embrace it when, to the astonishment of both the old man and woman, the snow fell off and left Marcia's arms a beautiful little girl. Oh, my little snow maiden, my little darling, cried happy Marcia, as she led the child into the hut. Meanwhile, Akeem could not get over his wonder he rubbed his head and felt sorely puzzled. He did not know whether he was asleep or awake, but felt almost sure that something had gone wrong with them somewhere. But to return to Snow Maiden, as Masha was pleased to call her, she grew rapidly, not only daily, but hourly, into a tall, beautiful, and graceful girl. The peasants were delighted with her. Akim had come to the conclusion that it was all good. Their hut was now always in constant mirth. The village girls and boys were frequent visitors to it and played, read, and sang with the snow maiden, who understood in all thoroughly and did her best to assume all around her. She talked, laughed, and was altogether so cheerful and good-natured that everybody loved her dearly and tried to please her in every possible way. At the same time, a better and more obedient daughter never was. She had the most lovely white skin, just like snow, her eyes like forget-me-nots, her lips and cheeks like roses. In fact, she was the very picture of health and beauty. With her lovely golden hair hanging down her back, she looked just like a girl of 17, though she was only a few days old. Akim said Masha one day to her husband how good Providence had been to us, how Snow Maiden had brightened us in those few days, and how wicked we were to grumble as we did. Yes, Masha, in return, Akim. The spring sun came out, the swallows began to fly about, and the grass and the trees became green all at once. The lovely Russian peasant girls gathered themselves together and met the young cavaliers under the trees in the forest where they danced and sang their pretty Russian songs. But the snow maiden was dull. What is the matter with you, my darling? asked Masha. Are you ill? You have always so bright and cheerful as a rule, and now you are dull all at once. Has any bad man thrown a spell over you? No, mother of mine, nothing is the matter with me. The snow maiden replied, but still she continued to be dull. By degrees she lost her beautiful color and began to droop sadly, greatly to the alarm of those around her. The last snow had been vanished. The gardens began to bloom, the river and lakes rippled with birds sang merrily, and the fact of the wide world seemed happy. Yet our little snow maiden drooped and looked sad. 
She sat with her hands folded in the coldest part of the hut. She loved the cold winter. It was her best friend. But this horrid heat she hated. She was glad when it rained a little. There was no boiling in the sun. She did not mind the winter sun. The summer sun was her enemy and quite natural too, poor thing. When she was born in the winter in the snow. At last, the great summer fields arrived. The village youths, the maidens, came to the snow maiden and asked her to join them in a romp through the woods and begged Masha to let her go with them. At first, Masha refused, but the girls begged so hard that at last, on thinking it over, she consented, for she thought it might cheer the snow maiden up. But, she said, take care of her, for she is the apple of my eye, and if anything happens to her, I don't know what I shall do. All right, all right, we shall take care of her, just as she is dear to us, cried the young people, as they took Snow Maiden and ran off with her into the forest, where the girls wooed themselves in wreaths while the young men gathered sticks, which they piled up high, and at sunset they set fire to them, and they arranged themselves in a row, one after the other, boys and girls, and prepared to jump over the burning heap. Our Snow Maiden was the last in the row. Mine, said the girls to her, don't stray behind, but jump after us. One, two, three, and away they went, jumping over the flames in great delight. Suddenly, they hear a piercing scream, and on looking round, discovered the snow maiden was missing. Ah, cried they laughing. She's up to one of her tricks again, and has most likely gone and hidden herself somewhere. Come, let us go search for her. They all ran off in pairs in different directions, but nowhere they find their missing companion. Their happy young faces soon turned very grave, and their joy gave place to sorrow and alarm. They met at last in the roadside outside the forest and began asking each other what they should do. Perhaps she has run home, said one. This seemed a happy thought, but they ran to the hut, but no snow maiden was there. They looked for her all through the next day and night, and on the third and fourth, they sought her in the village, hut after hut, and in the forest, tree after tree, bush after bush, but all in vain, nowhere could they find her. As for poor Akim and Masha, it is needless to say that their grief was too great for words. No one could comfort them. Day after day, night after night, Masha wandered in the forest, calling like a cuckoo. Oh, my little snow maiden, oh, my little darling. But there was no answer to her call. Not one word from her sweet voice did Marcia get in reply. Snow Maiden was not to be found, that was certain. But how had she vanished? And whether had she gone? Had the wild beasts of the forest eaten her up? Or had the robber bird carried her off to a blue sea? No, it was not the wild beast, nor was it a robber bird. But as our little friend was jumping over the flames after her companions... She evaporated into a thin cloud and flew off to the heights of the heaven. The end. Before I jump into the story, I want to say that we here at Even Darker wish you the happiest of holidays. I almost survived Thanksgiving. I returned from California with a sore throat, which is now a full-fledged cold. Forgive my snottiness. To the story. So after pounding for many years and gloomily spying on the neighborhood children, 
Akim and Masha decided to play in the snow and fashion a child out of it. I wonder who the stranger was that walked up and blessed their work when they were making their snow infant. Is that who brought the blessing or the magic? What's his backstory? It would be quite alarming for a child to grow to full size within three days. Good thing she's stopped or we'd have a completely different story. How did no one realize that the girl they called Snow Maiden was going to melt as soon as summer came? Maybe if they had, she would have avoided jumping over the fire. In the next couple of weeks, I will share the Russian story of Snegoroshka, the other version, or most likely the origin of the snow maiden. I leave you with this. In some parts of Russia, people still follow the ancient tradition of drowning a straw figure in the river or burning it on a bonfire to dispel the winter. The custom symbolizes the transition from winter to spring. Can you drown a straw figure? Wouldn't submerge be a less offensive word? But that was the definition, and of course, this is a Russian tradition. As promised, now for even darker. The Child of Snow Moved by a strong desire to see and know foreign countries and to meet with adventures, a worthy and rich merchant of London left his fair and good wife, his children, relations, friends, estates, and greater part of his possessions, and quitted the kingdom. Well furnished with money and, and great abundance of merchandise, such as England can supply the foreign countries, and with many other things which, for the sake of brevity, I do not mention here. On this first voyage, the good merchant wandered about for a space of five years, during which time his good wife looked after his property, disposed of much merchandise profitability, and managed so well for her husband when he returned at the end of five years, greatly praised her and loved her more than ever. The merchant, not content with many strange and wonderful things he had seen, or with the large fortune he had made, four or five months after his return, again set forth in quest of adventures in foreign lands, both Christian and pagan, and stayed there so long that ten years passed before his wife again saw him. But he often wrote to her that she might know that he was still alive. She was young and lusty and wanted not any of the goods that God could give her except the presence of her husband, his long absence constrained her to provide herself with a lover, by whom shortly she had a fine boy. This son was nourished and brought up with the others, his half-brothers, and when the merchant returned, was about seven years old. Great were the rejoicings between the husband and wife when he came back, and whilst they were conversing plentifully, the good woman, at the demand of her husband, caused to be brought all their children— not omitting the one who had been born during the absence of him whose name she bore. 
The worthy merchant, seeing all these children and remembering perfectly how many there should be, found one over above, at which he was so astonished and surprised and inquired of his wife, Who was this fair son, the youngest of the children? Who is he? She said, Oh, my word, husband, he is our son. Who else should he be? I do not know, he replied. But as I have never seen him before, it is strange that I should ask. No, by St. John, she said, but he is our son. How can that be? said her husband. You were not pregnant when I left. Truly, I was not, so far as I know, she replied. But I can swear that the child is yours and that no other man but you has ever lain with me. I've never said so, he answered, but at any rate, it is ten years since I left, and this child does not appear more than seven. How can that be mine? Did you carry him longer than you did the others? By my oath, I know not, she said, but what I tell you is true. Whether I carried it longer than the others, I know not, and if you did not make it before you left, I do not know how it could have come, unless it was that not long after your departure. I was one day in our garden when suddenly there came upon a longing and desire to eat a loaf of a sorrel, which at the time was thickly covered with snow. I chose a large and fine leaf, as I thought, and ate it, but it was only a white and hard piece of snow. And no sooner had I eaten it, I felt myself to be in the same condition as I was before of my other children was born. In fact, a certain time afterwards, I bore this fair son. The merchant saw at once that he was being fooled, but he pretended to believe the story his wife had told him and replied, My dear, though what you tell me is hardly possible and has never happened to anyone else, let God be praised for what he has sent us. If he has given us a child by a miracle or by some secret method of which we are ignorant, he has not forgotten to provide us with the well withal to keep it. When the good woman saw that her husband was willing to believe the tale she told him, she was greatly pleased. The merchant, who was both wise and prudent, stayed at home the next ten years without making any other voyages, and in all that time breathed not a word to his wife to make her suspect he knew aught of her doings, so virtuous, patient he was. But he was not yet tired of traveling and wished to begin again. He told his wife, who was very dissatisfied, Be at ease, he said, and if God St. George so will, I will return shortly. And as our son, who was born during my last voyage, is now grown up and capable of seeing and learning, I will, if it seemed good to you, take him with me. Oh, my word, she said, I hope you will, and you will do well. It shall be done, he said. And thereupon he started and took with him the young man, of whom he was not the father, and for whom he felt no affection. They had a good win and came into a port of Alexandria, where the good merchant sold the greater part of his merchandise very well. But he was not so foolish as to keep at his charge a child his wife had by some other man and who after his death would inherit like the other children. So he sold the youth as a slave for good money paid down, and as the lad was young and strong, nearly a hundred ducats were paid for him. When this was done, the merchant returned to London safe and sound, thank God, and it needed to be told how pleasant his wife seemed to be in good health as well. But when she saw her son was not there, 
she knew not what to think. She could not conceal her feelings and asked her husband what had become of their son. Ah, my dear, she said, I will not conceal from you that the great misfortune had befallen him. Alas, what? she asked. Is he drowned? No, but the truth is that the wind and the waves waft us to a country that was so hot that we nearly died from the great heat of the sun. And one day when we had left ship in order that we might each dig a hole in which to shield ourselves from the heat, our dear son, who, as you know, was made of snow, began to melt in the sun and in the presence was turned into water. And ere you wish have said one of the seven Psalms, there was nothing left of him. Thus strangely did he come into this world and thus suddenly did he leave it. I both was and am greatly vexed and not one of all these marvels have I ever astonishingly seen so greatly. Well, she said, since it has pleased the gods to give and take away, his name be praised. As to whether she suspected anything or not, the history is silent and makes no mention, but perhaps she learned that her husband was not to be hoodwinked. The End This story is from France. La Sainte Novelas Novelas is a collection of 100 stories assembled in the mid-15th century by Anton de La Salle. How long is a man allowed to leave home and expect a woman not to have an affair? She ran the business, made him even richer. This made me think about the necessity for women to have birth control. Though, I have to say, this husband did not abuse his wife, even though he didn't believe her. Also, he was quite patient. He waited ten years before taking his next trip, and then, of course, he took the boy, sold him into slavery. When I read the tale, I wondered if we'd have an Oedipus kind of ending, but no, he was never heard of again, as far as our story goes. I looked up the sorrel leaf, and that was one of her explanations for becoming pregnant, is eating the leaf. The sorrel leaf, they're edible when young, but toughen with age. The plant has a distinct, sharp, sour taste. Leaves contain oxalic acid, which can be poisonous in high quantities. Countries who partake in the leaf are India, Afghanistan, Armenia, Eastern Europe countries, and finally France. In French cuisine, traditionally, it's cooked with fish because sorrel's acidity dissolves thin fish bones. Definition and history of the word hoodwinked reflects an obsolete meaning of the word wink. To wink means today to close one eye briefly. But during the 1500s, it meant to shut both eyes firmly. So a highwayman who placed a hood over a victim's eyes to effectively close them was said to hoodwink his prey. And soon hoodwink came to mean to dupe. I think pretty historically it's been said that the French and the English hate each other. Yeah. Well, this is a French story about an Englishman 
that was duped by his wife with a story that she really thought it would fly. I mean, I get this vision in my head of all these dark-haired children, and then you have a towhead over here, a blonde, blue-eyed child, completely different than the siblings. It really shows how poorly the French person who made this story thought of English. It's very funny. And now for our weekly installment of Pinocchio. Chapter 30. Coming at last out of the surprise into which the fairy's words had thrown him, Pinocchio asked for permission to give out the invitations. Indeed, you may invite your friends to tomorrow's party. Only remember to return home before dark. Do you understand? I'll be back in one hour without fail, answered the marionette. Take care, Pinocchio. Boys give promises very easily, but they as easily forget them. But not me. I'm not like those others. When I give my word, I keep it. We shall see. In case you do disobey, you will be the one to suffer, not anybody else. Why? Because boys who do not listen to their elders always come to grief. I certainly have said Pinocchio, but from now on, I obey. We shall see if you're telling the truth. Without adding another word, the marionette bade the good fairy goodbye, and singing and dancing, he left the house. In a little more than an hour, all of his friends were invited. Some accepted quickly and gladly, others had to be coaxed, but when they heard that the toast was to be buttered on both sides, they all ended up accepting the invitation with the words, we'll come to please you. Now, it must be known, among all his friends, Pinocchio had one whom he loved most of all. The boy's name was Romeo, but everybody else called him Lampwick. For he was long and thin and had a woe-begone look about him. Lampet was the laziest boy at school and the biggest mischief maker. But Pinocchio loved him dearly. That day, he went straight to his friend's house to invite him to the party, but Lampwick was not there. He went a second time and again a third, but still no success. Where could he be? Pinocchio searched here and there and everywhere and finally discovered him hiding near a farmer's wagon. What are you doing there? He asked Pinocchio, running up to him. I'm waiting for midnight to strike, to go. Where? Far, far away. And have you gone to your house three times to look at you? What do you want from me? Haven't you heard the news? Don't you know the good luck is mine? What is it? Tomorrow, I end my days as a marionette and become a boy like you and all my other friends. May it bring you luck. Shall I see you at my party? But I'm telling you, I'm going to go tonight. And what time? At midnight. And where are you going? a real country. 
the best in the world, a wonderful place. What's it called? It's called the Land of Toys. Why don't you come too? I? Oh, no. You're making a big mistake, Pinocchio. Believe me, if you don't come, you'll be sorry. Where can you find a place that will agree better with you than me? No schools, no teachers, no books. In that blessed place, there is no such thing as study. Here, it is only on Saturdays that we have no school. In the land of toys, every day, except Sunday, is a Saturday. Vacation begins on the 1st of January and ends on the last day of December. That is the place for me. All countries should be like it. How happy we all should be. But how does one spend the day in the land of toys? Days are spent in play and enjoyment from morn to light. At night, one goes to bed, and the next morning, the good times begin again all over. What do you think? Hmm, said Pinocchio, nodding his wooden head as if to say, it's the kind of thing, it's the kind of life which would agree with me perfectly. Do you want to go with me? Yes or no? You must make up your mind. No, no, and again, no. I promised my kind fairy to become a good boy, and I want to keep my word. Just see, the sun is setting, and I must leave you and run. Goodbye, and good luck to you. Where are you going in such a hurry? Home to my good fairy. She wants me to return home before night. Wait two minutes more. It's too late. Only two minutes. And if the fairy scolds me, well, let her scold. After she gets tired, she'll stop, said Lamport. Are you going alone or with others? Alone. There will be more than a hundred of us. Will you walk? At midnight, the wagon passes here that is to take us within the boundaries of that marvelous country. Oh, how I wish midnight would strike. Why? So that I could see you all set out together. Stay here a while longer, and you will see us. No, no, I want to return home. Oh, wait two more minutes. I've waited too long as it is. The fairy will be worried. Poor fairy. Is she afraid that the bats will eat you up? Listen, Lampwick, are you really sure that there's no schools in the land of toys? Not even the shadow of one? Not even one teacher. Not one? And no one ever has to study? Never, never, never. What a great land, said Pinocchio, feeling his mouth water. What a beautiful land. I never have been there, but I can well imagine it. Why don't you come? It's useless for you to tempt me. I told you I promised my good fairy to behave myself, and I'm going to keep my word. Goodbye, then. And remember, me to the grammar schools and to the high schools. And even to the colleges, if you meet them on the way. Goodbye, Lampwick. Have a pleasant trip. Enjoy yourself and remember your friends once in a while. And with these words, the marionette started on his way home. Turning once more to see his friend, he asked him, But are you sure that in that country each day is composed of six Saturdays and one Sunday? Very sure. And what vacation begins on the 1st of January and ends on the 31st of December? Mm -hmm. Very, very sure. 
What a great country, repeated Pinocchio, puzzled as to what to do. Then in sudden determination, he said hurriedly, Goodbye for the last time and good luck. Goodbye. How soon will you go? Within two hours. Oh, what a pity. If it were only one hour, I might wait for you. And the fairy? By this time I'm late. One more hour or less makes little difference. Poor Pinocchio. And if the fairy scolds you? Oh, I'll let her scold me. After she gets tired, she'll stop. In the meantime, the night became darker and darker. All at once, in the distance, a small light flickered. A queer sound could be heard, soft as a little bell and faint and muffled like the buzz of a faraway mosquito. There it is, cried Lampwick, jumping to his feet. What? whispered Pinocchio. The wagon that's coming to get me for the last time. Are you coming with me? But is it really true that in that country boys never have to study? Never, never, never. What a wonderful, beautiful, marvelous country. Oh, So when last we left Pinocchio, that fisherman had him all battered up and was going to eat him. And Aliadoro, the, the big mastiff, saved him, right? Pinocchio makes it to the fairy's house, and we have that zen snail that took nine hours to come answer the door. Okay, so now that line, boys give promises very easily. And then forget them. Boy, you can say that again. Oh, and Pinocchio, I'll obey. I can so relate to his good intentions and not being able to live up to them. But toast buttered on both sides is what makes everyone come to the party. How about Lampwick? How do you get that name, Lampwick, from Romeo? Lampwick sounds like a cross between Beetlejuice and Tom Waits. Oh, and Lampwick says, after she gets tired, she'll stop. <laughs> sure she will. Bats will eat you. What's with the bats eating you? And Pinocchio really hates school. I didn't catch that before. Thought he was doing really good when he showed up. Pinocchio, I think, needs a little Ridlin. I'm not a doctor, but what a cliffhanger. This is the part that really scared me in the Big Mouse version, where the boys are lied to about what it's going to be like. And I don't remember it being called, what, Toy Island? Oh, I can't wait till next week. Now for our new segment, Mythical Moments in Mythology with Karen Ellinger. When most people think of ancient Egypt and its omnipotent rulers, they generally think of King Tut and the physical features he's commonly depicted with, 
including the light brown skin, the color of almond or sienna. In some cases, this would be accurate, but Egypt was a very cosmopolitan culture with a diverse mix of ethnicities. In fact, there was a time when Egypt's rulers were black, hailing from the kingdom of Kush, located in modern-day Sudan and Upper Egypt, according to KPBS. Around 750 BC, they conquered Egypt, enthroned their own pharaohs, and ruled Egypt for nearly a century in what would be known as the Nubian Dynasty, or Egypt's 25th Dynasty. Rather than do away with Egyptian culture, the Nubian kings assimilated into Egyptian culture while adding some unique Kushite elements and ended up uniting Upper and Lower Egypt with Kush to form one of the largest empires in Egyptian history. This period also marked the first widespread construction of pyramids since the time of the Middle Kingdom, nearly 1,000 years before, according to David Silverman's Ancient Egypt. Why don't more people know about Egypt's black pharaohs? A big part of this has to do with short-sighted pride and racism. For the Egyptians that would once more assume power after the reign of the Kushites, to be conquered was not a point of pride, and the recorded history largely overlooked the period of Kushite reign. Having already been regulated to the historical shadows once, the black pharaohs were again slighted by famous archaeologist George Reisner, who excavated most of the important historical Kushite sites. A product of an era of increased bigotry, Reisner, quote, could never get past his racial myopia and accept that these dark-skinned African people had built such an advanced and powerful society, unquote, according to KPBS. Though the Nubian dynasty lasted less than 100 years, from 744 to 656 BC, it is credited with restoring traditional Egyptian values, culture, art, and architecture during the rule of its five pharaohs. Despite not always getting their historical due, we have Egypt's black pharaohs to thank for much of the Egypt we know today. Nephren Ka, the black pharaoh, also known as Nofru Ka, is one of the primary avatars of Niarathaptap on Earth, although in the past it was an independent entity. Niarathaptap often uses this mask for missions that require diplomacy or to recruit acolytes. Quote, Then down the wide lane betwixt the two columns, a lone figure strode, a tall, slim figure with the young face of an antique pharaoh, gay with prismatic robes and crowned with a golden shrinked that glowed with inherent light, unquote. H.P. Lovecraft, fragment of the dream quest of unknown Kadath. Nearlathotep is worshipped in this avatar by the 200-plus members of Brotherhood of the Black Pharaoh. The Brotherhood of the Black Pharaoh is a sect of wealthy Egyptians and Sudanese, most of whom hold positions of power and who worship Nearlathotep, specifically his avatar of the Black Pharaoh. Dedicated to carrying out their will on earth, they are relentless in their dealings with those who stand in their way. They meet at irregular intervals to perform rituals in the desert near the pyramids in Saqqara and in the network of caves below the Sphinx of Giza. Nefrenka was supposedly the last pharaoh of the third dynasty of Egypt. He was the one who introduced the cult of the animal-headed gods to that nation and always stood out as a sorcerer. Nearathotep was not long in the taking an interest in him and summoned him to the city of Irem, proposed a bloody pact. 
Nefren Ka would sacrifice thousands of victims in his honor, and Nearathotep would give him the gift of prophecy. This was done, and Nearathotep granted him the power to see the future. He secured the shining trapezoidedron for Egypt, but after being convinced by the resident haunter of the dark, he had a lightness temple created to hold the stone and the deity within. That temple became a center of abominable happenings, and the rites carried out there were so monstrous, the temple was destroyed. According to legend, when Nefren Ka felt that his life was coming to an end, he took refuge in his own crypt, and there he spent what little time he had left, writing down on its walls everything that future would hold. It is said that the black pharaoh was buried in the bent pyramid of Dysar, but the truth is no remains have been found at the site. It seems that this is because when he passed away, Nefren Ka merged with Nearathotep and became one of his avatars. It is also said that years later, Queen Nycteris had a son whom she named Nefren Ka. According to some rumors, this could be the reincarnation of the Black Pharaoh and would therefore be Nearathotep himself in a human avatar. Long after his death, Nefren Ka once appeared to Pharaoh Akintenen to propose that he resume the cult of Nirathotep, and Akraten refused. In addition to this, had Nefren Ka's name struck out from all records and monuments to let no one remember the atrocities that had been committed. For this, Nirathotep cursed Akintenen, causing the collapse of his empire. Nefren Ka was first created by Howard Phillips Lovecraft in The Outsider, written in March through August of 1921 and published in April 1926. According to Lynn Carter, his mention in The Hunter of Dark, written in November 1935 and published in the December 1936 edition of Weird Tales, is a reference from Lovecraft to one of Robert Bloch's best story, Fane of the Black Pharaoh, published only in 1938, but whose manuscript had been read by H.P. Lovecraft. This avatar is especially active in the Dreamlands, where he acts as the guardian to the city of Kadath. In the trepidation story, it is said that the Black Pharaoh received the name of Nimrod Tothep. It is possible that this is due either to the fact that Nefren Ka used his name as a pseudonym or the fact that there was a second Black Pharaoh. For the fungi from Yugoth RPG campaign, Keith Herber introduced Nefruka as the leader of Brother of the Black Pharaoh. It is believed to have been a typo corrected in future writings with Herber using Nefren Ka as the former leader of this cult. In the comic Fall of Kalulu, Nirathotep takes the form of the Black Pharaoh. The end. Well, first I have to give credit where credit is due. How you make it through those Egyptian names, I couldn't do it. And not to be cheeky, but these Black Pharaohs come from Kush, and they're Kushites. <laughs> I mean, like marijuana kush, you know? Okay. All right. So the information on the black pharaohs was suppressed due to prejudice. Can we even believe in the years that we were given 
that they were prevalent. Also, a thousand victims were killed in his honor. Who were these victims? Oh my God. And that the pyramid was destroyed, that's fascinating. But that that one black pharaoh hid in his crypt and wrote what the future would be on the walls. I mean, was he right? I this is this is fascinating stuff. Thanks again, Karen. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Even Darker. Please review and follow us. If you would like to support us, please do so by hitting the follow button, share, rate, and review. I'd love to hear your feedback, so leave a voice message if you're so inclined. I want to thank two of my most favorite men on this planet, Damian Drake and Jay Stinnett, for being our storytellers. And give an even darker welcome to Karen Ellinger. Even Darker is made with Anchor and can be found on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcast platforms. Join us next week as we look again at original fairy tales. <laughs>